Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover, all for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 5,000 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 5,000. Enjoy. Right now, I'm joined by Michelle Chen, a contributing editor at In These Times and Descent Magazine. She's also an associate editor at Culture Strike, and uh, she's also a contributing writer at The Nation Magazine, where she uh, wrote the piece we'll be talking about today, which is called Citizens Are Not Consumers. When Education Gets Outsourced, Students Lose. Michelle, welcome back to the show. Hi. So, um... I was uh, reading your piece, and I wanted to actually uh, read from the start of it for uh, those who haven't had a chance to read it yet, because I think it sets up the topic pretty well. So if you'll, if you'll bear with hearing your work read, I'm sure you don't mind. Um, it says, and this is, again, uh, you can find this at thenation.com. It's entitled, Citizens Are Not Consumers by Michelle Chen. Quote, we're constantly told that our money is better managed by the private sector. Why trust faceless bureaucrats instead of simply contracting out services to fiscally disciplined corporate managers? Political branding reflects the melding of the commercial and the civic. We don't receive benefits. We instead transact with public service providers. Hardworking taxpayers deserve a, quote, return on investment. While this approach could work for certain state functions like constructing public works and collecting tolls, perhaps, some operations may be too sensitive to outsource to the lowest bidder, according to an analysis of failed privatization products across the country by a group called In the Public Interest, or ITPI. Michelle, tell us about what ITPI found in their case study in California that you talk about in the article. Yeah, um, a couple of years ago, um, California was, uh, various school districts in California were beginning to shift their public school students uh, onto uh, a charter academy network, uh, and uh, this network called uh, CAVA. Um, they were, it was basically California virtual uh, academies, and um, that's essentially an online program that attempted to basically replace a brick-and-mortar school um, with the regular classroom setting with a kind of online uh, portal, if you will. Um, and so they rolled out this kind of uh, software um, apparatus, uh, and they would have students sign up for this uh, in lieu of regular public school programming, and this became essentially um, their K-12 education. Um, over time, it became apparent that as these schools absorbed more and more public school funding, they were putting um, the bulk of it towards uh, administrative tasks and things that did not particularly involve teaching or learning. And uh, that began to alarm authorities, and it also alarmed uh, this watchdog group in the public interest, which looks at um, the abuse of public contractors and um, sort of the uh, manipulation of uh, state, federal, and local loopholes to outsource things that shouldn't be outsourced. 
to private vendors. Um, they've been focusing a lot on charter schools because there are actually a number of these schemes that are actually orchestrated and uh, managed by private, often for-profit uh, companies um, that end up uh, absorbing a lot of public taxpayer funds uh, to provide an education that is often uh, substandard or is simply unaccountable. Especially when, as um, ITPI found in their investigation, uh, one in four teachers spent 80% of their time on clerical work, which obviously severely limited the time they spent teaching students. Um, and, you know, the, the charter movement's goal of efficiency uh, really kind of took the toll there and I think highlights a good example of why doing all of this for profit throughout different industries, you know, doesn't necessarily translate to education. Um, there was also another case study that you mentioned in uh, your article from ITPI uh, regarding what the um, the charter chain, I think it's, is it Mosaica did yeah. in uh, Muskegon Heights, Michigan? Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that as well? Yeah, it was a similar um, scheme, though, uh, with, you know, there are some charter schools that do essentially um, use the more traditional schooling model, so they're not totally online like uh, the virtual academies, which evidently provided a virtual education for yeah. lots of kids. Um, but uh, you know, there, there are some schools that are that attempt to be a little bit more, uh, I guess, like you know, traditionally oriented. And I think Mosaic um, was attempting; they were brought in primarily as a cost-cutting measure. Um, you know, as, as with many of the school districts in Michigan, um, you know, they were facing a fiscal crisis. Um, you've seen other places in Michigan, such as Detroit, um, their school systems have been in similar turmoil. So they attempted to essentially privatize their school system. Um, the, the venture ended up collapsing. It was a pretty catastrophic failure all around. Um, and um, it failed on many fronts, um, both academically and uh, fiscally. But in the end, they ended up, uh, you know, uh, Ending the contract, but they primarily said it had failed to achieve the cost savings that had been projected. Um, they just thought that was an interesting way to kind of do damage control there because essentially the district chalked their decision up to kind of a financial calculation, which is, of course, you know, their reasoning for going into that venture in the first place. So that's reasonable on the one hand. But um, on the other hand, I think it also says a lot about how we think about education these days, which is to say, uh, and this goes back to the um, California Virtual Academies venture as well, uh, which is to say that we're starting to think of schools as businesses and we want to run them like corporations. And when that mentality becomes kind of all-consuming, um, various other issues such as equity, such as, you know, the more holistic aspects of teaching and learning can really get lost. And I think that really comes at an irrevocable social cost to the students as well as the teachers, um, and I think that often gets overlooked. I mean, it's not like you know, so the the school the school contracts end up getting canceled in these two districts where they failed. Well, you know, that was eight years of, of many children's lives spent with a substandard educational system because some uh, you know person in the budget office decided that they should privatize education and treat kids as guinea pigs i mean you know that that just seems like a cost and a, and a risk that's um you know that that's not worth bearing 
No, especially because it's not like you can go back and fix it because those students have already passed through, uh, and God knows what they're dealing with now due to the fact that, uh, you know, they had to deal with that substandard education for that many years. Um, So it sounds like there's a pattern with these charter schools and the effects of these cost savings cuts. Yeah, certainly. And and the reason I focus on education, I mean, this is just one of the many issues with outsourcing, right? We see outsourcing in every aspect of public services and in our public infrastructure. Um, but the thing is, you know, okay, we have like a couple water main breaks or something like that. Or, um, you know, even uh, the, the, maybe, you know, we have leaky pipes or the sewage doesn't, you know, the garbage isn't collected properly. I mean, those are those are maybe disastrous in the short term, but they are ultimately manageable. I, I worry for people who care about education and who see public education as, as a real public trust and not just, you know, a part of our brick-and-mortar infrastructure, that um, there's a real value um, on a number of different levels that's being lost. Not just in, it, It's not something that can be easily costed out in terms of annual budgets. I mean, when we think about the value of education, that, that really cuts across generations, and it can shape our entire culture. And in this, in this sense, I'm afraid that privatization begets a more private sector-oriented mentality in which the more we start to treat schools as businesses, the more the children coming out of those schools will come out with a kind of mentality that only sees, um, you know, financial and monetary costs, um, you know, in their immediate future and, and cares less about things like, you know, providing a more just, a more fair, a more compassionate society. Yeah, especially, you know, when you have, and that's even if they do make it through or can learn those things, uh, you know, while they're getting this substandard education, which I think is not guaranteed uh, whatsoever. So now that we're seeing, you know, some of these failings documented in in these different communities, are are we seeing a a pushback to any efforts, um, you know, anywhere to, to try to privatize these school districts now that, you know, like you said, unfortunately, these kids were used as guinea pigs. I mean, hopefully someone can at least learn from these mistakes, or are we still seeing this happen all too much? Well, we're seeing the charter school battle play out a lot across the country. Um, and you may know about this, but in terms of, like, uh, teachers' unions versus charter networks, right? It's often framed as a labor battle. Um, and uh, in uh, places like uh, Chicago and in D.C., um, often when the unions have risen up and um, where teacher labor unions have been very vocal, um, it's often been on the issue of privatization. If not uh, the creation of charters outright, then they're reacting to the privatization of various school services, such as, you know, privatizing, um, you know, janitorial services and sort of, you know, siphoning off different aspects of the public education system in order to cut costs. And, and that's where, you know, a lot of people try to achieve budget savings, um, but the unions are often pushing back against that because they're saying, like, look, this not only impacts our livelihoods, but it also impacts, you know, children's learning conditions. And I think what you're seeing in, in many communities is that you actually have the community coming together with uh, labor unions to um, put these charter schools under much greater public scrutiny. Um, in, in some cases where charter schools have managed to succeed, um, it's actually because they're responding to a real crisis, right? I don't want to say that 
charter schools are not, um, you know, trying to fill some sort of uh, role or some sort of social deficit. This is often happening in communities where there has been a crisis in public education, um, in which there's been severe under-resourcing, and um, you have dysfunctional schools. I mean, that, that, does, that does happen. Um, the thing is, is privatization the answer? And I think that more and more people are starting to question this. And it started with the teachers' unions, of course, because they are often the ones who are kind of, you know, fighting to defend uh, regular public K-12 institutions. But often you're, you're starting to see parents and children rise up as well, um, students and, and, and communities coming together with the teaching workforce to say, look, um, we see public education as something that belongs to the community. And we don't like the idea of a for-profit, publicly traded company coming in and um, imposing a, a certain educational program on us without any input from us and w- without any sort of democratic check on what they're allowed to do to our kids. Yeah, I think a very fair point, especially when you're talking about your children and, you know, the the, the, the kids in your community. Uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break here. I am joined again by Michelle Chen, who's a contributing uh, editor at In These Times and Descent Magazine and a writer for TheNation.com. We're talking about her piece uh, where you can find at TheNation.com called Citizens Are Not Consumers. If you have a question or comment for Michelle or myself, uh, you can join in at 8886-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. The website, again, TheNation.com. And Michelle's Twitter handle is at Michelle Chen. It's M-E-E-S-H-E-L-L-C-H-E-N. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Grimaldi. And for Leslie Marshall, I am joined by Michelle Chen, who's a writer for TheNation.com. Again, you can find her on Twitter at Michelle Chen, spelled out just like it sounds, M-E-E-S-H-E-L-L-C-H-E-N. Michelle, in the time that we have left, I want to just ask you a couple other questions about this. Um, I I did find it interesting that you're kind of looking at it in different um, sectors of the economy and our society, but education does seem to be... uh, Obviously, a very sensitive one for I think some good examples you brought up, like you know the fact that you can't you can't get back the damage that's done in a lot of these instances. And, and I thought your analogy compared to like you know collecting uh, trash or other public services, you know you have more room for error. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, to answer a question if you if you think you can to, that you pose towards the end of your piece, which I, I think really hits on the nerve of a lot of what causes this problem. And, and you write quote. Why is it taboo to suggest that effective government will cost money? End quote. So why do you think that is? Um, well, it's a, it is a rhetorical question, but I, I mean, I, I, I actually think that um, we need to start grappling with the fact that 
good things cost money. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, we're, we're constantly told, right, the, the, the business mentality is, is obviously that you need a return on investment. And then why aren't we willing to invest in our public services as taxpayers, right? I mean, we're only, we're only willing to invest to get a return on our investment in the private sector. But somehow when, some, when we're told something is going to uh, cost more in public funds, um, our first instinct is to say, oh, that's, that's like wasting money on government, right? I mean, like, well, why is all government spending waste, full of waste, fraud, and abuse? Which is the common, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the common saying given to it. Um, whereas, you know, private, spend, uh, private contracting is seen as an efficient use of the private sector, right? Um, it's often uh, put in, a positive ter- in positive terms as, uh, you know, public-private partnerships, right, or Harnessing the innovation of the private sector, um, you know, or innovating yeah. in government. Or You've heard some of these taglines a lot, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, so like it's just the way that we talk um, about corporate control versus uh, government uh, operations is is very different. And I'm just you know trying to parse what that means and what that says about our society. And I think that. Um, if you go to uh, regions where there's a stronger public welfare state, people really trust in their public services, right? I mean, they, they believe that there really is a need for, say, you know, a public, uh, reliable mail service, right? I mean, people honor their post offices. Uh, and people value their teachers more. Teachers are better compensated. They have better, um, you know, they have, uh, they have better uh uh, uh, health benefits. They have better pay. They have um, more generous retirement benefits than they do in this country. And, and why is that? And I think it has a lot to do with the way we value um, public services. And I think that going back to this question of effective government costing money, we need to be willing to trust public servants to use that money responsibly. And this is not to say that we should just, you know, throw good money after bad, right, which is another cliche that's often used. Um, but uh, the idea is, if, you know, it starts with a certain trust in our public institutions, and I think that we are lacking. And when we are lacking that kind of public trust, uh, I think it lowers a lot of morale, and I think it leads to this kind of pernicious mentality where we think that business has um, the public interest uh, more and more at heart than uh, than you know our public institutions do, and once we start going down that path, then we start to challenge why we need government anyway. And I think you see a lot of that playing out even on the campaign trail um, in our government. We have a very anti-government kind of libertarian streak, and while I do understand that you know this is America and we value our individualism and our freedom and we want to get the government off our back. Um, there are limits to that, and I don't think that we should use our children to test the limits of that. No, absolutely not, especially when you see the disastrous effects of what it is. And these are just a couple of instances that you know are brought up in this piece that you wrote. Um, it, this is a tougher question, but... Um, what do you think is the right way forward then if you have, you know, this, this distrust in government? Obviously, it's, it's not just a quick, easy answer, but what are some steps forward that you think can happen in this country to regain some of that trust or just to have better education policy and, you know, in the areas that you're discussing here? Well, I think it's 
starts with, um, you know, looking at the institutions, the civic institutions that um, serve our public sector and that are a part of our public sector but maybe aren't government itself. Um, you know, I've, I'm interested in the question of labor and how we respect um, labor institutions. I know unions often get a bad rap in this country uh, for being corrupt or, you know, for uh, not looking out for the interests of consumers, et cetera. But I, I think that we're getting to a point where we're starting to see the value of having a body that represents workers' voices. And when those, um, when workers in the public sector have adequate representation, they can really actually be a check in holding our government accountable. And I think that serves, that, that truly serves the public interest because you have um, the public sector, you have a civic body within the public sector that is holding both the government accountable and that is, in a sense, protecting taxpayers' investments. Um, you know, and, and I think that the attack on teachers' unions is an attack on one of the last bastions of organized labor in the public sector that can truly be a strong political voice. Uh, and so I think that we shouldn't, sh- we shouldn't um, you know, um, uh, strive for, you know, this, uh, this ideology-free government where uh, everything is just done on a purely technocratic basis. I don't think that's possible. I think um, politics and government are, are inseparable. But I also think that when we have democratic governance, um, then our public services will improve to go along with that. In terms of partnering with the private sector, um, In the Public Interest has actually done a lot of work in researching what works in terms of holding private contractors accountable. And um, I cite some of their recommendations in, in my report, but, um, you know, they're, they're talking about um, doing cost-benefit analysis that kind of looks very closely at how businesses will be appropriating taxpayer dollars, looking in the long term what the costs are, and um, you know whether or not those are really going to line the pockets of CEOs, or whether they're going to genuinely improve our public resources. Michelle Chen with The Nation, thank you so much. This is Mark Romaldi in for Leslie Marshall. Leslie will be with us after the break. This is no ordinary sub shop. This is Firehouse Subs. Welcome to Firehouse! Tired of overpriced lunches that underdeliver on flavor? Head to Firehouse Subs, where for a limited time you can get a $4.99 choice sub. Choose from a medium smoked turkey, Virginia honey ham, or roast beef. They're custom-made hot subs at a price ready-made to make you smile. Just $4.99, only at Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs, save more lives. Participating locations plus tax limited time offer prices may vary for delivery. 